0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to the New Books in Indian Religions podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkron. More importantly, today I get to speak with Dr. James McHugh. He's professor of uh, in the Department of Religion at the University of Southern California. We're speaking about a brand new um, OUP publication called "An Unholy Brew: Alcohol in the in Indian History and Religions." Um, James, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you. Jim. Good to meet you.
0: <laughs> uh, nice to meet you as well. Uh, no, you, there must be a backstory to this book. Perhaps in a pub, who knows? But um, how how did you how did you come about researching this topic?
1: Um, I guess there's, there's kind of multiple backstories. I, I mean, my other book was on perfumes and smells, so I've always been. I mean, in, in a way. I was a bit torn when I was even a teenager, I kind of was really into science, and so I was always into sort of, you know, potions and plants and things like that. And so that's kind of always informed most of the stuff I've done. And then when I was, uh, and then when I was doing a master's years and years ago, um, I was really very uh, fascinated by soma, you know, the sort of mystery of the kind of soma, um, what is soma. I got really interested in that years ago, and that's a kind of intoxicating substance. And then um, when I was doing a smell book, um, there was there's this text called the Marisolasa, sort of the delight of the mind, sort of encyclopedic thing, has all you know about things kings can get up to. And uh, there's a, I'd always noticed, well, there's chapters on loads of stuff in there, but there was always a chapter on uh, the king sort of staging a drinking party, and I'd have like. A, glance or two at it and and um there were clearly loads of recipes for drinks in there and then the description of the party and the drinking snacks which was kind of and i had been meaning to look at it for ages and eventually I did and uh and well it was actually really difficult to make sense of and so I realized I started working on it and then I was like well to make sense of that I better look at something else and look at this thing and that thing And it sort of snowballed and I realized then I was like, oh, actually, there isn't even there isn't a book about this. So I'll write that book. It'll be kind of, you know, I mean, when you write a book, you're going to be stuck with it for quite a few years. So So you've got to be kind of like, you know, never-endingly interested by it. So this topic seemed kind of good like that.
0: Well, it's I mean, it's a fascinating topic, isn't it? Um, There. um, So 30,000 foot view, right? In the history of Indian religions, alcohol in the quote-unquote history of Indian religions, what are some broad takeaways that we, that, you, and perhaps even speak to something you you navigate? I believe in your introduction, in terms of, well, there might be some who think this is a rather offensive book, but if they read it, they wouldn't think so. Talk about that a little bit.
1: Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, um, definitely don't want to sort of tell that kind of story where there was some sort of ancient golden age of sort of permissiveness. Um, Absolutely, definitely wasn't like that. I mean, I guess sort of morally speaking, I mean, the sort of ins and outs of why people do and don't drink and why they think it's bad or why they think it's utterly forbidden sometimes, they're very complicated, it turns out. In fact, it's not the sort of one sort of blanket ban. Um, But I mean, generally, morally speaking, I'd say it's always, uh, you know, from earliest periods, you can see there's a bit of um, um, a sort of mixed attitude, even in the Rig Veda, uh, towards drinking, where it's kind of present, but it's kind of maybe frowned on or it's associated with people doing regrettable things. And this just develops over the centuries into, um, you know, there's some people celebrating it enjoying it and even those people will sort of admit it makes you do stupid things sometimes. And then there's like quite a lot of people for various reasons saying it's just utterly terrible and should never be should never go near it. So you know even in the sort of the the sort of bad side of it's super complicated in fact and uh and um yeah more complicated than I'd imagined. And then uh when you kind of come to the actual sort of more positive side of drinking or the positive spin on drinking it's just like yeah again. There's just so much to say. There's I mean that's what really struck me is how many different drinks there are, uh, how it changes over the centuries. It's not just it's not very stable. Um, I think sometimes people tend to think sort of ancient world, old world stuff just is very sort of stable, but it's very changing, and uh, there's a lot of variety of drinks and then all sorts of different contexts where it seems people drank. So big take home is it's super complicated whether you know whether you're on the on the sort of positive or the negative side um
0: so tell us i mean that was one of the fascinations uh of mine as well um long before i started hindu studies which must have been pretty close to 20 years ago i actually um uh, did a bunch of work in the hospitality industry a <laughs> so food and beverage and drink so it's it's so fascinating to 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 read some of the different sorts of drinks and sort of the, it's sort of like an, an ancient uh, uh mixology <laughs> mm. <laughs> um what are some of the different drinks that you've come across
1: um i think it's important to mention that the sort of main well the sort of most ancient category this is drink surah and in a way, surah kind of just means, you know, it's a, it's such a sort of important word. It kind of almost, one of these words that almost means anything. Uh, so sometimes surah just means sort of alcoholic drink generally. Um, but like, it can also mean a, be a sort of smaller subsection of drinks um, made from um, grains. And uh, so cereal grains. And there's lots of types of surah. Uh, and it seems um, very, very ancient ones. They're made in... A, one way but like after a certain period you know say 2000 years ago onwards surahs are made and they still do this in parts of south asia they're made kind of in this way in using kind of um you turn the starch of the grains into sugar using a mold and and then have a yeast as well and probably loads of the microbes and herbs as well i mean they didn't think of it in terms of yeast and microbes they just thought they were adding this sort of cake of transformative substance um, but that's actually the same method used in, like, say, East Asia, Southeast Asia. So it's this kind of pan-Asian method. And it seems there were lots of types of surat. So you've got to think, you know, it's in the same family as things like Chinese yellow wine or sake or various Korean drinks, loads of drinks. And, um, but there were loads of types. There's black ones, white ones, clear ones, pale ones uh, with different herbal mixtures. So that was a very big complex affair and that's the kind of most ancient type of drink. but then you know in south asia they had you know they were very sophisticated with sugarcane at an early period so they had if you think with sugarcane you can do things with sugarcane juice or you can make some sort of jaggery type stuff This sort of it's like dark brown sugar but it's sort of solids and so the flavors would be very different so there were various sugarcane wines um the there was imported grape wine from places in the northwest and later on probably in iran area um palm toddy um uh, let's think mahua there's, there's this is drink mahua which is sort of um, sort of unique south asia as far as i know i'm pretty sure it is and uh, this is a big, big tree that has these um, flowers full of nectar that you can ferment and they weren't distilling at that point I don't think but um, you know that you know you can sort of ferment it into it and apparently it's got a very distinctive taste I didn't manage to taste it and then there's a lot of more mixed drinks that are kind of you know fruit juice plus honey plus sugar cane plus herbs a lot of the drinks in fact are, they're almost all a bit of a mixture this you know if you're kind of like you know, people are into say natural wine or, or, or German beer. It'll all be very obsessed on its sort of simplicity and purity of ingredients. And for the most part, apart from grape wine, for the most part, these ancient drinks tend to not be like that. They tend to have like all sorts of stuff thrown in for sort of complexity. And um, so this idea that sort of ancient means kind of simple and pure is that's just a mistake.
0: Where are where do we see drinks um, uh, most Stringently prohibited. Where do we see the most sort of stigmatization of of alcohol consumption?
1: Um, well, it's you know, there's there's sort of a few strands to that. There's a, there's a kind of discourse of vices for kings, and that can be like they shouldn't drink at all, or it could be all more about moderation. But that's very important in fact, even though it might not be sort of the most strict prohibition. You know obviously if if the king gets really drunk and makes some terrible decision to sort of burn down a village or something, that's like particularly bad. So that's like that's one. And then you know maybe on the more religious side, um, um, a lot of groups um, in society who were sort of aiming to um, sort of live a particularly sort of uh, ritually um, controlled or sort of morally sort of controlled life. so say very observant Buddhist, Buddhist nuns, Jains. Um, and especially in the um, in groups of Hindus, um, Brahmins, they would um, say. Um, but then within the sort of Hindu, at least within the classical law, I mean, the thing the classical Hindu law has Brahmins drinking no drinking at all, and then it has uh, the next two, the other two, twice-born varnas, um, Chaturas and Vaishyas. They can drink, but they just can't drink. Stuff made from grains, which would be a, very, a lot of drinks, in fact, that they can't drink. That's probably because those grain ones resemble this um, surah used in Vedic rituals, sort of the most archaic surah, which is the most forbidden. And it makes them a little bit Brahmin like in the sense that they are subject to some abstinence. But it's Brahmins who are very marked by this. Um, there's, a, there's a story where um, there's a guy pretending to be a Brahmin. And he's been drinking, and he's, i can't remember why he's pretending to be Brahmin now. But they can smell it on his breath, and, and that gives it away. It's like we well, can't be Brahmin if smells smells booze. You know what I mean? So it's almost very, it's a, you know, it's a sort of—you know—it's a mark of Brahminhood um, in this sort of classical period to um, be abstaining. But of course, there's side by side with that in the legal texts, there's all this stuff about very specific castes and drinks and things like that, varnas and drinks. Um, there's also like, you know, well, well known, uh, sort of quotes in the legal text and beyond just about like, you're just best off not drinking. It makes you do stupid stuff. You know what I mean? And they're kind of applicable as a sort of blanket, you know, don't drink it stupid way. So that, you know, so it's complicated, you know, there's these blanket kind of advices, but then there's these very, very technical things. Um, and then obviously what people were actually doing is probably slightly more complicated and different again. And we don't really have access to that,
0: yeah. Yeah, that's an important distinction in terms of um, and, um, perhaps an idealized society or oh, yeah. or, or sense Very... of conduct in text versus who knows what people were doing. Um, so uh, the flip side of that, where do we see in Indian uh, religions in the history of India, um, um, less prohibition or enjoyment or indulgence in drink?
1: Yeah, um, it is sort of in a religious context, um, well, I mean, most of the sort of enjoyment you'll see in texts that aren't going particularly down a massive sort of religious path, as it were, or where you sort of see a biblical morality text or sort of thing um, on sort of Buddhist monks' conduct or something like that. you do see, you see a lot, you know, there's quite a lot of drinking in the epics because um, the, there is an element you do see that sort of there's a bit of a chatria ethos that um, there's drinking sometimes connected with that realm. Again, that's that's the realm where it could become a vice. It could become a problem. It could make people do dumb things. Um, needs to be, um, you know, um, controlled, but not necessarily completely prohibited. So you see some of it there and then you see a lot of it in things like um poetry where you've got erotic scenes descriptions of kind of country festivals and things like that um and then you actually some of our evidence actually is sort of religious so you'll have like um um, quite a lot of buddhist narratives will they'll be sort of telling stories about why not to drink but they'll you know in the process describe you know drinking scenarios yet again how realistic, any of this is, um, is um, very debatable. But you know, you get references to everywhere. But the kind of positive depictions, um, um, I'd say, uh, I guess the most positive ones um, are in uh, poetic texts with a sort of erotic leaning, where it's sort of, where drinks kind of seen as this sort of inhibition, almost like an aphrodisiac, sort of removes inhibitions, and gets people warmed up a bit.
0: Do we see ritualized drinking?
1: Yeah, there's, um, there's quite a lot of that. Um, so there's well, there's one rather obscure Vedic sacrifice called the Sautramani, which I, I have not got time to get into here. <laughs> but it's kind of seen as exceptional, because normally you wouldn't have any drink involved in a Vedic sacrifice. Um, and Soma, obviously, is the, if, if you're going to have something that kind of causes a sort of mind-altered state, that would be Soma um, in that context. But there's one where um, you're using... Um, uh, you're offering, actually offering, and perhaps consuming some surah, which is kind of ritually transformed into soma partly. Um, and uh, the main thing about that sacrifice, though, is sort of aside from what's going on with it, is that it's seen as very sort of anomalous. You know, so um, you will have, um, say, Jain texts, um, later Jain texts, kind of pointing out the the anomalous nature that there's this one Vedic sacrifice with surah but then you're not meant to have surah so how does this all add up so um, that's one thing but it's, it's a bit of an oddball and like I said it's sort of well known as a sort of anomaly and then you get drinking in some, by, by no means all, some um, what you might call tantric rituals um, which kind of yet again hard to explain um, basically a lot of these um, tantric texts that mention drinking they, the actual The actual sort of tantras themselves just sort of say to do it. They don't necessarily explain why you're doing it. Um, They do allude to various myths um, where there is a kind of divine um, origin to sura and things. But say, in the book, I focus more on um, Abhinavagupta, um, a Kashmiri sort of interpreter and sort of developer of um, certain forms of tantra. And he connects it to a sort of non-dualistic philosophy where um, by doing something that for Brahmins would be extremely sort of illegal, sinful, transgressive, by doing that, they're sort of, it's a sort of cognitive ritual where you're sort of living out the fact that actually everything is divine and everything is the absolute in this sort of very, very kind of carefully demarcated ritual moment. Um, you know, this thing that is actually really forbidden in everyday life actually is really. Um, uh, you know completely sacred and uh, god basically sort of the absolute and so you know in this very controlled situation you kind of apprehend that by doing something you know supposedly bad in normal life but uh, so um, but there's there's other interpretations as to what is going in in some tantric texts there's there's a lot more to be said about that I I only sort of it's a long chapter but I really did um, it is the tip of the iceberg to be honest
0: so speaking of that long chapter, talk a little bit about the structure of the book to sort of inform those who may want to dive into it. Like, how, how's the book laid out?
1: Oh, yeah, that's, yeah, that was, um, that's sort of developed sort of naturally, but uh, it's almost like how I did my research is because when I was, say, looking at legal texts, um, they get very, in, especially later Hindu ones, they get very into the ins and outs, They have all these long lists of drinks and, you know, different varnas can have this and that. And that. And, uh, and I was like, well, wh- why? You know, what I mean? <laughs> like as far as, you know, in a way from an outsider's point of view, it's just like they're alcoholic drinks. Like, why is anyone worrying about dividing them into categories and things? And so I was like, well, to understand these legal texts, um, I've got to have a feel for what these drinks are. And so basically uh, it all kind of came down to sort of working out what on earth these drinks were in the first place. So I start out drinks and you know, there's, a, there's two big chapters where I, they're basically like uh, an encyclopedia of different types of drinks with some of the techniques of making as well and then I talk about the um, brewing culture what we can know about the sort of um, maybe the public because brew it seems that a lot of the brewing went like, pub drinking house type places they brewed and sold so that chapter is about brewing and um these kind of public houses as it were pubs and then there's another chapter on more elite drinking which will be done in private so that's about drinking so it's drinks drinking and there's some stuff on medically medically regulated drinking there as well and then I move into then there's a second part of the book where I move into almost like reflection or sort of higher order dealing with it so there I start. With a load of mythological or epic incidents that um, uh, are sort of prominent when it comes to drink, and you need to know those because actually, once you start reading, say, I don't know, sort of um, texts on vices, or or say Buddhist, you know, speeches about the evils of drink, they will allude to quite a lot of that material. So you sort of need to know that. So I do these myths and stories, and then I. get into the legal materials, the moral legal materials, various traditions. It's kind of, um, there's a lot there. (laughs) That's a very long chapter. And then the Tantra, because in a way, because the Tantra is sort of, at least some interpretations of the Tantra, is sort of uh, um, messing with those legal traditions. I put that then, because you can only, only when you've understood all that stuff, can you kind of really get a rich feel for how exactly and Some of these tantric uh, methods and interpretations are working, and then at the end, I kind of have a, little, a few comments about sort of what happened next. Um, you know, does it does it all sort of vanish? You know, what do we know about what happened next? And so I look at some much later texts on um, hints of survivals of these practices or these ideas.
0: And just to be clear, this is a textual project. The evidence for this is all text, correct?
1: Uh, mostly, I did um I did in order, especially to understand the drinks. um I did um, some field work um, and um, and looked at a lot of um, stuff on comparative fermentation methods. There's a lot published on that as well. there's, there's a huge thing. So you imagine it's like all the microbiology of it and stuff. people are really interested. It's kind of important source for stuff. and, and that was really helpful. so um that I am using the text, but to, especially to interpret the drinks and get a good feel for them. I I I've looked very broadly at um, the ways, all sorts of traditional ways people make drinks around the world uh, today and in the past. So there is a kind of practical law, or at least kind of, you know, um, outside the Sanskrit texts influence coming into uh, making sense of these um, recipes or these drinks that, um,
0: What are some of the stories we see in the epics that involve drinking?
1: And there's quite a lot. I mean, some of the, I guess the most, the most famous, the most iconic is this classic at the, towards the end of the Mahabharata where um, Krishna's sort of kinsmen and the the Yadavas or the Andhakas and the Vishnis, um, they, well, it's kind of a bit, I won't give the whole story, but basically they, um, You know, they've been sort of cursed that they're going to be sort of destroyed and um, various things happen. And, you know, Krishna realises that this curse is sort of coming to fruition and sort of bans drink because he knows they'll, you know, that'll make things a bit safer if people aren't kind of getting drunk and getting into fights and things. But then one day they all go out, they all go to the beach, basically, and... um, take a little drink with them in a way it's a bit of an exception it's like a festival it's out of town so you know are they really you know they're not really breaking the rules they're kind of in a different space and they drink and uh, they uh, there's this club appears I'm not going to get into the club that's a whole separate story but this sort of big this club sort of manifests in various ways um, it's the book of the club uh, like a club like a captain caveman kind of club.
0: Um, I was going to say, for those listening, I'm sure they're all familiar with uh, index studies. But, you know, when we're talking about drinking and clubbing, we don't mean, you know, know exactly, exactly. the venue, we mean the weapon, but go on.
1: Yeah, the weapon. And then they, they all these, all the men, at least, uh, not Krishna, not Balarama, but all the men, they sort of mutually kill each other in a really horrible way. You know, there's like fathers and sons killing each other and it's, it's horrible. And this... Well, one, is actually quite a short book. It's very easy. I mean, you can easily find it online to read if anyone's interested. Um, but then this becomes, and not just for Hindu sources, but you get this in Buddhist and Jain sources, it's the sort of proverbial, awful, tragic, messed up thing that happens when people drink. Uh, and actually what's interesting about that is like tech, in t- tech I mean, you know, probably the, a lot of the classical Hindu law that I'm dealing with is probably later than that. But, you know, technically they they are permitted to drink um, sort of by sort of caste by Varna um, law, at least in later periods. And um, so it's not, this isn't sort of sinful Brahmins drinking. Uh, this is kind of people who, you know, it's kind of part of their culture to drink sometimes. Uh, and nevertheless, they get so drunk, they do all this terrible stuff. In a way, by making it sort of legally permissible drinking, that sort of removes that sin aspect and just makes it pure, you will do appalling things if you drink. And uh, so it is very much the proverbial uh, disastrous drinking scenario.
0: Passionary tale.
1: Yeah, yeah, very much.
0: Um, Why is the book called An Unholy Brew?
1: Ah, yeah, that's well, it's a bit of a weird, it's a bit of a funny story. Well, um, I you know, I sort of chose that very early on as almost as the kind of when you're sort of like, you know, proposing a book and applying for grants and things. And um and I hadn't written the book at that point. And then as I as it developed, I I realized that perhaps wasn't the best. Title, but then you know, I'd mentioned it to various people, and a few people had mentioned it in their publications. I'd written papers where I'd gone see McHugh forthcoming, and unholy, so I was kind of stuck with it. I mean, the unholy there is unholy in that sense of you know, as I don't know, uh, you it's not very common, but you, you might go, Oh, that was an unholy racket this morning when the trash van went past. A sort of you know, it doesn't mean unholy, like literally, it means just kind of like big and spectacularly noisy or something like that. So there's there's that element that it's and brew in the sense of a mixture. Uh, So uh, it was meant to have sort of the double meaning of like uh, you know one hell of a mess and mixture or you know melting pot or something like that. Um, But actually, if if I'd been able to, I'd have probably gone for the ocean of Sudar would have been the title, but. um, but it was too late to. Ch- it was way too late to change it. Funny. I uh, Writing books is,
0: you know, yeah. the ocean of surah. Just, just from a from a perspective of, I do a lot of naming for courses and, and marketing and things for the public. But the, the the vibe, shall we say, between an Un- unholy brew and the ocean of surah is so night and day. It's it's comical. It's great. <laughs> yeah. Oh
1: well, is it? You know, these things happen. You know. <laughs> so
0: um either way it's an intriguing title um oh, thank you m- tell us about soma i know you have a little appendix uh dedicated to it but but soma surely we must know what soma is right
1: i don't think we do um it's <laughs> no oh it's I'm so teasing something. i'm people teasing get so, people get so people get so into it uh, and it's really fascinating I mean, it's like one of the reasons i got interested in this whole thing in the first place um I, uh, I well, I, I actually put soma in the appendix as I as I mentioned in the book because it's it's like it's really weird. You'll actually get you'll give a talk for like you know an hour or something on like all the alcohol. You'll mention there'll be in the Q and A there'll be like a two minute soma question, and almost anyone remembers about that talk is the soma part. So I was just a bit annoyed that soma sort of taking over um, all the time. So it's in the appendix and. Um, um, I guess I guess um, I was more interested in. Well, there were some theories early on, in fact, that soma might be an alcoholic drink. So I want. To, I, I sort of had to deal with them because they're sort of part of the sort of the sort of historiography of alcohol. Is this these these sort of soma theories that are you don't tend to run into so much anymore? Probably didn't have time to ferment, so uh, wouldn't have been a fermented drink. And um, I guess I, I got more interested in the kind of meaning of SOMA, and the kind of SOMA ritual. Um, it's funny, I was just talking about it with a class this week, and we were just sort of thinking about the sort of scenario of one of these SOMA rites, and, you know, who who's there, including the gods, if you know what I mean, you know, who's involved. And I was asking the students to try and translate it to their experience, and they were sort of saying, oh, it's like some local politician having a massive national politician around and... There's lots of very, very, very good chefs presenting dinner and hands the national politician a very good bottle of wine. And In a way, you can sort of think of it like that. There's so much else going on with these rituals. I mean, it's not quite the same as that in many ways. It's ancient basic stuff. So it's like really not quite the same as that. But that's kind of how they wanted to translate it. And I guess the, the value of that image is that, um, you know, in that side of scenario, the the most important thing to understanding what's going on there is not the, you know the sort of neurochemistry of the alcohol that's in the bottle of wine. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, and, and in terms of if you had descriptions of that event or speeches people made about that event, uh, describing the wine and the pleasure of the wine, you might not necessarily use those to try. if you didn't know what was in that bottle it was one, but you didn't know. It might be tricky to kind of go from descriptions of such a kind of rich and complex social event um, to just going, oh, well, you know, um, this is going on, they're saying this, therefore it must be this kind of drug, like a hallucinogen or something like that, which I, I think sort of methodologically there's, you know, you're missing a lot of steps. And you, you ignore, you're sort of um, you're scraping off a lot of other stuff that's going on in the individual the there. So, so I don't, I'm not sure if it's sort of possible to find out to be honest um but you know i like i i think it's kind of cool that um you know it's this sort of mystery that sort of keeps prompting lots of reflection and analysis on um the topic so i mean um i I never want to sort of put down a scholarship on it because it's all fascinating and it's very generative of interesting ideas
0: fascinating was there anything else about the book that you hope we touch on
1: uh, not particularly I think we've sort of gone over most things really um, yeah um, yeah it's pretty long but hopefully it's pretty accessible I tried very hard. I tried I guess that's one thing I tried very hard I worked with two separate editors to make it as sort of smooth and digestible as possible because partly I really did want say somebody like um, a sommelier with an interest in history of alcohol to be able to more or less follow it or somebody who does say uh classics, just sort of like, you know, ancient Greek stuff that they'd be able to follow it. Um, so um, I've tried very hard to make it more accessible, which might maybe have simplified a few things from the um, um, sort of Indian studies side of things, but um, yeah, that's my hope, is that a slightly broader audience can read it.
0: Well, that that is also the hope of the New Books Network <laughs> Accessibility <Exactly. for> us. <laughs> 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 for a broader audience, so I'm with you. I'm with you. Um, great. Well, thank you for appearing on the podcast today.
1: Excellent. Thank you, and good to meet you. And um, yeah, good to chat. All right. So,
0: yes, um, for those listening, we've been speaking with Dr. James McHugh uh, of the University of Southern California on his brand new 2021 OUP publication, An Unholy Brew Alcohol in Indian History and Religions. Until next, t- until next time, stay safe, stay sane. Um, I wanted to say um, uh, something about drinking, but I won't. Just continue contemplating uh, the, the the pros and cons of alcohol. Take care.